Divine Truth Assistance Group. These group assistance sessions are about putting principles of divine truth into action. This discussion is part of the Texas USA 2013 series. The topic is Addictions and Supporting Beliefs, presented by Jesus on the 13th of November 2013 in Austin, Texas, USA. This is Session 5, Part 1. That was quick. You all just quietened off real fast there. <laughs> um, I reckon my volume could go down a little bit, actually. So mine's the first one there, if you just pull it down. Not too much, just a, just a touch. Um, so that's pretty good. Yep, Some, something like this. Good. Okay. How are we feeling today? The nippy cold weather has come in. I remember one time here, it was really, really sunny. I was looking outside and think, boy, it looks really good sunny day. And it was minus, it was, well, it was 18 by your 18 degrees Fahrenheit <laughs> outside and, a, and the aftermath of an ice storm. Yeah. It, and I was totally shocked that Texas could have such weather because <laughs> the reputation Texas has sort of overseas is hot and dusty and all those things, and it's not like that. Some of the summers like that, obviously, but winter is, particularly when it gets close to Christmas time, seems to be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, how are we today? Good. No. Yes. No. Yes. Too bad. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, can you remember my two questions that I asked you? Let's uh, look at what we said question number one was. So what was one? Uh, if we use the microphone, it's good. So, yep. uh, Michael, if we start with Michael, actually. Yep. Thanks. What do I believe from my childhood? Yep. And if you can just remember the camera. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> So, what do I believe? Believe from my childhood. From my childhood. From my childhood. And the second question. Marcel, say where your microphone is nearby. Michael, you did you write down the second question? Do you want to? What do I do to avoid childhood beliefs? What my addictions? Do I do to avoid feeling childhood beliefs? Okay. Okay. So what, what I would like to do today is discuss this stuff with you more, like what, what we do in these two situations. So firstly, we want to look at what you actually finished up finding out that you believed from your childhood in terms of... So we're not now talking about what you hope you believe from your childhood, but what actual beliefs came out of your childhood. So 
These are the kinds of feelings that you have now that oftentimes you don't want to own up to and you oftentimes don't want to accept. And what we want to do is find them and feel, feel about them. So, so what are some of those beliefs that you found from your childhood? If we, Carolyn, if we go there first. If I am not strong, I will not survive. Okay, so, so can we say that you needed strength, but what did you define strength to be? What, what do you mean by strong? I meant, um, I meant if I don't do what it takes to survive in my environment, whatever that may be. So would you view crying as strength? Yeah, no, not okay, at all. So, so, that, so what, does, what does strong mean? Strong mean? means powering through something or so, so keeping up with the pack, basically. So could you say no emotion is strength? Yeah. We, yeah. What else? Um, like I feel like that keeping up with the pack, like if my parents were doing something and they had a certain emotion, I had to buy in and be doing that same thing or else I'd be left behind. So, so agree with the pack, shall we uh-huh. go? With the pack. In this case, it's the family pack, isn't it? Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. So in other words, if you don't agree with the family, you're the odd one out. Definitely. And, and it's never good to be the odd one out. <laughs> Yes. Never a good thing, right? Yeah. What else do you, do you define strength to be? Uh, intellectual strength. So mind over feelings? Could that yes, be? Definitely. Good. And physical strength too. Okay, so almost it's almost a feeling, isn't it, that men, you've got to be like a man almost. Yeah. Because men generally have more physical strength than women. It, it, it's almost like a competitive nature. I have to win. I have to be competing against okay. people. So could we call this compete and, and win? Mm-hmm. You can't compete and lose. No. That's not the goal of competition. That's not the goal of competition. <laughs> <laughs> You've got to compete and win. <laughs> yes. And if you didn't win, don't compete. Exactly. <laughs> so if you knew you weren't going to win something, don't even bother going there. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. good. Which goes back to the, if I'm not perfect, I can't, don't even start. Okay, so whose definition of perfect was it though? My parents. Okay, so if we just write that down as a major heading, perfect, but it's not sort of God's definition of perfect, it's parents' definition of perfect, or society's definition of perfect, yeah? Uh-huh. Good. What else is involved in perfection for many of us? Well, feelings of low self-worth or feelings like... Well, no, no, don't be at all intellectual about it. What was the definition when you were a child of perfection? So we're saying it's the parent's definition, but what is that definition? What, what, what does it mean to be oh, perfect? It's usually what they are. Okay, so it's what they are. Or yes, I agree. what they believe is, you yep. know... So that's, if we pass the mic across to Neen. Doing what they want... So you could stay out of trouble that way. Okay, so it's really doing. Again, it's not feeling, is it? It's doing. You don't. You could. You can almost have a completely opposite feeling, but as long as you did what they want, you, inside you can feel like I don't want to do what they want. What they want, stupid. You can. You can have all those feelings inside yourself, but you don't voice them. You just do what they want. 
Because if you voice them, you get punished, you get hurt, you're no longer perfect in their eyes. So a lot of the times we had actually feelings that opposed our parents' definition, but, but we never voiced them. We always finished up doing what they want. So it's the doing what parents want, not feeling what parents want. See, most parents are not aware that when you do what they want, most of the time you don't feel what they want. <laughs> This is why, you know, the average child grows up and eventually cleans up its room, maybe, if the parents want it. And if the parents are willing to revert to violence in order for that to happen, then the child will finish up cleaning up the room. But as soon as the child goes off and lives by itself, what will it do? Its room's a mess, right? And there's the rebellion. In other words, they didn't feel to clean up their room. They didn't feel they wanted to. They didn't feel the tidiness and the self-esteem involved in tidiness and all of those kind of things. They just did what mummy and daddy wanted just to get out of feeling a whole heap of other bad things, really. And then as soon as they get out of the mum and dad's area or sphere of control, they go and do the opposite of what mum and dad wanted. And, and yet when mum and dad come to visit, what do they do? have a big clean up, you know, everything goes back in the right place, it's all spotless then mum. And then, of course, if mum and dad rock up uninvited, it's like a huge panic then, right? Because all of the things that you've been doing that you don't want them to see. What else is the definition of parents' definition of perfect? Thanks, Ron. Don't make them feel... Things that they don't want to feel. Don't? Sorry, say that again. Make them feel what they don't want to feel. Okay, so, so in other words, only make them feel good, right. basically. Make them it? feel good. Make them feel Definitely. good. Definitely. Yeah. So perfect in your parents' eyes is making the parent feel good. Now, can you see already... If you just look at these two things of strength and perfection, and we're going to list quite a number, of course, of childhood beliefs, but can you see how they already impact upon your thinking about God? So, for example, with perfection, if the, the goal of being perfect is to just make your parent feel good, then for most people that means that they just do what they think God wants them to do. And they don't really feel about whether... God wants them to do those things or they don't really feel motivated by love to do those things. They just do it because they believe God, that's what God wants. So if God wants me to belt my child, I belt my child because it's what God wants. And inside, when you're building your child, you don't often feel very good about it, right? But you go, oh, well, it's what God wants, so away you go and belt your child. And we do that because we feel that God is the same as our own parents. In other words, that God wants God, you, to make God feel good. Does that make sense? That God wants you to make God feel good is a belief that many of us have. I reckon this sounds okay. There's occasional problems, but yeah. With regarding to the parent's definition, a lot of people then go, okay, what is God's definition of perfect? And that's what I'll be. Without feeling it, we just do it. So this is why people have attraction to religions that tell them what to do. So religion tells you, obey the Ten Commandments. So what do you do? Obey the Ten Commandments. You don't care whether half of the commandments seem pretty unfair or any of those things. You just obey the Ten Commandments. 
And by the way, that's a Christian statement based on the book of Exodus. Right? And, and so we obey the Ten Commandments. And when we obey the Ten Commandments, all we're trying to do is work out what God's definition of perfect is and then be that without too much other thought. Right? And many of you are still trying that on the divine love path, actually, when you're, when you're listening to divine truth. You think, oh, all I'm doing now is changing what God's definition of good is. And then I'll try to do that without feeling it. Right? And what we finish up doing oftentimes when we're um, listening to new truth is we just swap the same behavior with the new truth that we've learned. Our true feelings don't really change. It's just our behavior that changes. Does it make sense? And that's frequent. If you look at this part here too, like agree with the pack. This is very much a religious thing, isn't it? If you don't agree with the pack, with the religious definition of what should be right or wrong, what happens usually in most religions? Well, they do exactly the same as what the family would do to you, and that is boot you out of it or put a heap of pressure on you to reconform. That's what they do. They don't honour the fact that you're allowed to make a different choice or decision if you want to. Right? This mind over feelings is another thing that most religions are very, very favourable towards, isn't it? You know, they'll even try to convince you that love isn't a feeling, that love's actually a thought in order to try to get you to believe that, you know, to love you have to have your mind dominance in place. Right? And most religions are mind dominant for that reason. Right? You look at some religions, like the Buddhist religions, faith, it is totally mind dominant. Get all of your desires and all of your feelings and all of your so-called ego out of the way and only be dominated by your mind or clearing your mind of all of these issues. Right? And, but if you look at most other religious thoughts, they're very similar to that. They just fill your mind with a whole set of beliefs uh, rather than actually work through the emotional part of things. And if you look at all religions, almost every one of them historically has gone to war with another one historically, which is an indication of the level of competition they feel towards each other. Isn't it? In the end. They're all competing for converts. And then when one set of converts gets too large, the other set want to attack them in order to bring down their numbers. And, and in fact, they'll go to whole countries and convert a whole country by force. Isn't that a show of the parents' definition of strength? Now, God's definition of strength is almost completely opposite to that. And God's definition of perfection is almost completely opposite to that too, by the way. And we'll find as we go through these lists of what do I believe from my childhood that God's definition of almost everything that we can come up with is almost completely opposite to what we've been brought up to believe. Right? So, so we've written down strength, perfection. What else comes to mind? So what I'm going to do is just summarise these separately. So... I'll just write them up here because we're going to revisit them from God's perspective. I better write them right. Strength and perfection. Okay. 
what else comes to mind when it comes to, God, to what you learned or believed as a child? You want to have a step? Jen, yeah? Um, to add to perfection, a big one for me is um, don't make a mistake. So, so perfection is no mistakes, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so that can be added to the word perfection. No mistakes. This is why when I encourage you to experiment and make mistakes, you go, what? It's a crazy idea. What you want me to do instead is to tell you what to do. Right? And what that, what that does, in fact, is it creates a cult. A cult usually is led by a person who's totally willing to tell you what to do. Right? And, and this all comes from this thing that you don't want to make mistakes. You don't want to feel that you have to go through your own processes of correction. What you want to do instead is to have somebody to tell you what is right and you just do it. And you don't want to even have to discover what is right for yourself. You just want someone to tell you what is right and then you do, just do it. If you, if you think it's right, of course you do it. Right? And a lot of times we automatically assume it's right because somebody who says they're in a better condition than us and says they're more connected to God and, and they look like they are, they might be just talking to spirits or whatever, but they look like they are, we go, oh, well, they must be, so I'm going to do what they say. And if they say go and have sex with 20 guys to work through a sexual issue, you go and have sex with 20 guys to work through the sexual issue. Right? And there are a lot of cults on earth that actually encourage you to go and have sex with 20 guys or girls to work through an issue. Right? It's not the best way to work through your sexual issues. In fact, it's one of the worst ways, in my opinion, to work through your sexual issues. But they'll encourage you to do it. And you do it because you're so afraid that your own opinion is a mistake before you begin. And so you start assuming that whatever is told to you is, is, is not a mistake. So that's all part of perfection. What else uh, comes to mind? If we come down and then go across to Scott. Um, hi. It's, um, for me, it's bad to be a female. Okay, so shall we say that it's about uh, gender rather than just being a female? Because there's many men that are taught that it's bad to be a male, right? So if we talk about some gender issues, and the belief about the gender is that there's all these faults about your gender generally. And oftentimes it's both genders that the faults are projected yeah. towards. So what do most people believe on earth is a natural part of the male gender? Sex. Sex, they want sex all the time, yeah. What else? Violence, violence. they're always violent. Yeah. So when I talk about God having masculine qualities, most people automatically go, those qualities? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not, God's not got those qualities, so God must be a woman, right? And this is why the divine feminine whole thing has taken off in New Age teaching because there are so many people who see male as equaling that. Right? Which is actually an inaccurate definition of what it is to be male. But let's now replace that with female. What do we see with female? So what were you taught for yourself as a female? I was taught um, that it was very bad to be sexual. That okay, even... so a woman had to be the opposite of sex. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's going yes. to be a bit of a problem given sure. that. <laughs> yeah, but that, that is true, isn't it? It's like a, a good woman doesn't have sex 
at least until she's married. So she remains a virgin until she's married, right? Yeah. So, so, she's, so the male is encouraged to have his sexual feelings even if he's not married, and the woman is discouraged from having his, her, her sexual feelings until she's married. Now, of course, there's going to be quite a lot of things happening because of those two belief systems, isn't there? When you think about how much upheaval that's going to create society-wise. But, so females must be, shall we write down the word pure? Right. Sexually? Yes. Yeah, what else? Um, don't project sexually or be provocative. So that's a part of being pure oh, sexually, yes, isn't it? That's don't true. project sexually, yes. don't be provocative. You've got a dress covering up everything. If there's a bit of flesh showing, then you're just encouraging yeah. a man uh, to rape you or harm you. So you've got to cover up. And then there's some mm. religious face, isn't there? Such as the Muslim religious face that basically says, you've got to cover up everything mm. otherwise you're to blame if the male is attracted to in some way mm. uh, I thought of another one um, to be subservient to the male yep so submissive or subservient yep and the bible does say that too doesn't it like if you look at uh, Paul's words in the Corinthian to the Corinthians he's talking about the wife needs to be submissive to her husband Right. So you're taught a good woman is submissive. A good woman is a person who's always submissive. What else comes up for you? I'm going blank. Now. That's okay. You're allowed to go blank any time you want here. <laughs> Anybody else come up with ideas about? Yeah. If we. Oh, Scott. We were going to come across with this, Scott. Yeah, um, perhaps before we hit Scott, though, can we ask about more female definitions of what you see as a good? Thing. Sorry. That's okay, you just felt it. Hurt it. <laughs> this is a really big one for me, and I was trying to forget it. Yeah, um, okay. To shut down sexually. Yes, so about shutting down sexually, which is about really being pure, the definition of being pure sexually in a lot of ways, isn't it? Okay. I have two. Um, this is similar to submissiveness, but a little different. Um, self, self sacrificing. Ah, yes. Uh, or should we even go one extent further? The woman has to be the martyr of the family. Uh, is that martyr? No. M A T Y. I had it. So, Emma, a martyr of the family or the person who sacrifices herself for the rest of the family, a good woman. A good woman is like sacrifices herself and sacrifices her career for the children. You know, the man doesn't do that. He still goes off and has his career, right? These are general definitions that we have. Yeah. And dependent. Dependent, yes. Dependent. And, 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 and. Dependent. So what do we mean by dependent? We mean she's financially dependent, she's intellectually dependent, she's quite a number of list dependents of what she should be. So that's all a lot of definitions. Now, of course, we could also add to the male definitions there, couldn't we? So I classify all of those as beliefs about gender. Does that make sense? Beliefs about gender. Yep. Now, if we come across to Scott, because he had another... God doesn't help average people. Okay, who does God help then if it uh, doesn't help average people? Is there any? <laughs> no one's more people than... People like 
Jesus or oh, like okay. the saints. So could we define it as you've got to be holy, basically, if you want to be spiritual. So there's this sort of, there's this definition of holiness, isn't there? What makes up a holy individual? Now, this plays out so much, actually. In fact, you know all the ideas and concepts that I never had sex in the first century all came from this concept that sexual activity was not holy. Right? So that was all about wanting to be holy. And in fact, there's whole movements of spirituality in, this, in the spirit world that, that feel holiness is, is connection with God. And in the sixth dimension, there are a lot of people who totally believe in God and they say they worship God, but they have their own definition of holiness, which are basically the same definition that the parents had while on earth, with a few modifications. Yep. Any others that you thought of? Um, doing my best hurts others. Ah, uh, yes. So how can we, what can we say about that one because that sort of fits in a whole category of things that one does um, Mary you've, if you want to use the mic if Scott just pass it back maybe a category around self expression or um, self definition or um... yeah let's call it the category of self expression shall we So basically, if I'm myself, um, that's going to be a bad thing. I have to be what other people say I should be, and that's the good thing. You see, see that? Many of us have grown up with that. Yeah. Yeah. Any others you got there on your list that you wanted to mention, Scott? Uh, receiving love from men is hopeless. Okay, so what would we call that? Uh, the definition of what is apparent, really, isn't it? Because for many, it's not only receiving love from men is hopeless, there's also receiving love from women is hopeless. <laughs> you know, so again, it's about what the parent has taught you to believe about the parent through their actions, not from their words. Yep. So basically, there's a lot of societies that actually believe that a good parent is a person that's quite hard and harsh and for, for, formidable and forceful that, that demands obedience and demands that the person does exactly what they say. That's what makes a good parent. Rather than a person who's gentle, soft, loving, kind, compassionate, sympathetic, and all those things. That's a weak parent. And there's a general belief on the planet that the compassionate, kind parent usually has, is very, very... Um, laissez-faire with their child in other words they don't really care about discipline of their child and their child, children grow up to be unruly society members which is generally true actually because God's definition of what love does there is discipline involved in love actually but, but the human definition seems to either be discipline with oppressiveness and violence or do nothing there seems to be nothing in between. You do one or the other, and both of them are going to create children who are actually quite destructive to themselves or to society. 
All right. Is there any others that you can think of here if we go back? Thanks, by the way, for the people handling the mics and running around and everything and the ones that have done it the last few days. Okay. I can only get my needs met through other people. Okay. This is about self-expression again, yes? So the feeling that um, I am not capable of creating what I need for myself. Right? And there's two forms of this sort of poor self-expression. One is that I need others. Right? So in other words, we become dependent upon relationships in order to get what we need. And what do you think the other one might be? One is that we need others to get the things that we want and so forth. Nina? We take what we need from others. So um, instead of, oh, it's kind of the same thing, I guess, but we may then provide what others need from us, but it goes around in a circle. Yeah, I'd sort of probably still leave that under the same category. We need others to give us what we demand, basically. Yeah, if we can. Um, that I can hurt others. Yes. I have a fear that if I, you know... If I'm not careful, I could hurt other people. Yep, and that sometimes hurting other people is okay, we believe, don't we? Like if somebody's attacking you, hurting them is okay, isn't it? Most of us believe it is. Like if, if for most of you guys who are married, if somebody was raping your wife, your feeling would be it's okay to shoot him. Right? Most people would feel that. So we're totally okay to hurt others. But I'm thinking about another aspect of this self-expression about others and, and yourself. Floyd? Would that be when we, we want to use materialistic things to meet that need? Yes, I feel that. So if we could use the need others into need things, need people, need locations, a need a larger way almost a whole list of things there, substances and all sorts of things could come under there. I'm more thinking about the issue of self-responsibility here because the, basically what we're taught when we need others is that, that we are not personally capable of creation. So... We have this internal feeling that we can't do it alone that starts generating inside of our childhood. So this is a belief that we finish up with as an adult that comes from our childhood that you can't go alone. You can't do it alone. You can't be alone. You can't go it alone. You can't do it alone. You can't be different because if you are, a lot of bad things will happen to you. All right? And it's an issue of uh, what I feel is self-responsibility, actually. This, we finish up growing up believing that we're actually not responsible. Because when we need others and others don't do what we want, we think they're responsible for that then. We, we don't even take any responsible for, responsibility for what we, creating what we ourselves need or want. All right, Mary? I was just thinking about the flip side of that where often um, we might be raised in a family to feel like we don't need anyone, like we're going to dominate this family unit. We, we raise people who don't need others and, yes. 
and actually that can lead to a lot of injuries where we're not reliant or we're not humble rather to feedback or to what God's trying to show us. Yeah, but the irony is usually a person who grows up in such a family still needs their family. That's the ironic thing, isn't it? Generally, they still have this feeling they need the family. Just the rest of the world's up the creek. (laughs) How many of you have grown up with this feeling that your family was superior to other families? There's a feeling in many that that's the case, right? So... Um, that comes from this thing of like fa- our family units got everything together. The rest of the family units in the world, they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what they're doing. You know? And it can be related to religious faith. It can be related to political ideology. It can be related to even intelligence or scientific background or all sorts of things. So we are all educated people, we know, compared to the ones that are not educated, they don't know what's going on. You know, we have a lot of judgment towards other groups of people in society for all sorts of reasons. And that all comes from our beliefs. Yeah. Anything else? We, we come down here and then... Up. I was just wondering on that particular issue of self-responsibility... Can you describe what creates that, where we surrender that and feel disconnected from it? Well, I feel, again, it's a belief from our childhood that causes us to sacrifice self-responsibility. We're taught that we need the parent. By, we're taught by the parent that we need the parent. So what, what's the subsequent result of that is that we then feel that we can't create without the parent. So then, of course, we're not going to take self-responsibility. We're going to wait till the parent do it. And, and honestly, most parents fall into this trap. Almost every parent I've ever observed actually falls into this trap. Even in basic ways like, you know, when the child dirties its room, the parent comes along and cleans it up. When a little tiny child who's playing with toys two years old turns up all the toys on the, on the floor, plays with them for a while, and then wants to go to sleep, do we make the child tidy up and put back all their toys? Not normally. Not at that age. We normally go, no, they're not capable of doing that, so we're going to do that for them, and we put them in bed, and then we tidy up their mess. So right from a very early age, we are tidying up the messes of our children. Yeah? One of those mics is fluctuating. It's one of the RFs. If you just see which one's going up and down, Corny. So it's that one over there. So let's switch that one off and just use this one mic. If you can just uh, pull down that sound of that one. But you also will need to switch off the actual receiver. And if you switch off the transmitter as well. Yeah, that's great. Hopefully we'll get rid of some of this noise that goes on. So now there's only one roving mic. Yep. Okay, thanks guys. So does that make sense? From a very young age we are taught to not take any personal responsibility by parents who finish up taking responsibility for us. How many people by the time they're five years of age cook every meal for themselves? I've never really met somebody unless they're on the streets. Who, cook, who prepares their own food. There are some. Most of them are people, children who have been given up and, and they're on the streets. They're the only ones who care for themselves from a, that, at that level, generally. 
The rest of us, we just cook for our children, clean up after our children, clean for our children. In fact, many of you mothers believe that's the definition of a good mother. That's what a good mother does. And I would put to you that a good mother teaches the children to look after itself by the time it's five. It cleans up its own room, it makes its own meals, it knows how to go shopping, it knows how to what food is good for it and what food's bad for it. It understands all of those things, loves itself enough to do those things. Now, if you imagine if by the five years of age every child was like that, we'd all be pretty self-responsible beings after that, right? And, and there's no reason why a child at seven or eight years of age couldn't, if it was like that, could be living on its own. There, there is literally millions of children in the spirit world living on their own. Totally self-responsible, right? And we have so much rebellion internally about that. You know, we can then go, well, what's our role as a parent then? Well, what your role is to teach your child to be able to be completely self-responsible. That's your role. And if, you, and if your child's 30 and still not self-responsible, I'd say you haven't done a very good job about it. Does that make sense? You haven't been very good at teaching them how to be self-responsible. So responsibility, self-responsibility... Uh, is not encouraged basically that's what we're saying what we're saying is that the parent defines that responsibility rests with the parent so the parent makes all the rules but also the parent has to do all of the hard labour which is often the case and so then we start projecting at God that God's Made all the rules, so God's got to do all the hard labour with our relationship. Right? And then when God doesn't do that, we go, and up you, God, and like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> not going to have to do any work myself. And we get really angry with God about the thought of even having to do anything at all in order to have a relationship with God. And that's because our parents have taught us from a very young age that they'll do it all for us and that's what love would do. And this is why most of us grow up, get married, have a family of our own. And so what do we finish up doing? Doing exactly the same thing because that's what love would do. And so we have these generations of people that only learn responsibility after they've been a parent. (laughs) When reality is we should all be learning responsibility by the time we're five. Not after we're a parent. Anything else you can think of that we could add to the list of beliefs from childhood? We're going back to... Yep. Thanks, Selena. Um, What about beliefs about what we have to do to belong? Would that be under self-expression? Like you have to get married, you have to be straight, you have to wear your hair a certain way, Yep. So to be acceptable to... Like so so should we call parents, that fitting into society? Fitting in. Yeah, that's what our parents teach us. Yeah. Actually, what the parents teaching us really is not fitting into society. We're fitting into their definition of what society, society should wants. be. Yeah. Not even what society is, but what society should be in their own idea. <laughs> so, you know, if we're in a religious faith, our definition of what society should be is identical to our religious faith. And so the child is brought up believing that that's what makes them a good person, being a member of that religious faith. But if you are a part of a political system and you don't have any religion at all, it's not the religious faith. It's, a, it's almost anti that. Like, 
to be a good member of society, you have to be an atheist. Uh, and because all of us are having taken on our parents' definition of what society should be, rather than even looking at what society should be from a completely open mind, we actually finish up becoming what our parents define society should be. So if a parent said that you've got to be a successful man to be a man, business-wise, then you grow up striving your hardest to be a successful man. But if your parents say you've got to be an artist to be a, a good member of society, then you'll grow up probably being an artist or a musician of some kind. And, and you'll poo-hoo any man who's you know, involved in the capitalistic way. You know, and we have these... Do we have these feelings of condescension towards them as well as that? You know, they don't know the truth. <laughs> and often at times all we're doing is reflecting our own parents' condescension towards other people. Right? Emotions. So I have a lot of beliefs about, you know, anger is dangerous and fear and... Okay, you know, yes. So how we handle emotions is a very interesting thing, isn't it, like in society? Now, the emotion definition of emotions will also be different depending on our gender. So for most men, they grow up believing that anger is okay. But if a woman's angry, she's not very feminine. So this is why most of you women need to start with anger because you've got a lot of built-up anger in there that's never been released right from the time of childhood because you've never allowed to be angry. Right? Whereas a lot of men have less anger to release because they basically release it every time they get upset. <laughs> but most men are also not allowed to cry. So, you know, you've got whole societies of men growing up feeling like, I can't cry, I can't cry, I'm not allowed to cry, I'm not allowed to cry, to cry is weak. Right? So these men, and, and in fact there's whole societies of men now who just can't cry. That's why they get angry all the time in fact, because they're allowed to get angry but they're not allowed to cry. But a woman, she's not allowed to get angry but she is allowed to cry because a lot of men go, yeah, she's the weaker vessel, so she's allowed to cry. And the Bible actually calls women the weaker vessel. If you look in Peter, the book of Peter, it says that women are the weaker vessel. Of course, nowadays, modern women are trying to change that. And they say, oh, I didn't really mean that. But that's what the words say in the Bible. So even our emotions are going to be dependent on gender. And our emotions are going to be dependent on what our parents defined as what are good emotions and what are negative emotions. And so therefore our self-expression with regard to emotions is going to depend upon all of these definitions. Okay. Anything else you can think of? Uh, Floyd, nice. That I was good enough for work, but pleasure was for others. Yeah, it's a good one. So, so there's this idea about work versus fun, isn't there, that we grow up to. And there's a whole heap of definitions we have about work. And in fact, when work is fun, that's a no-no. If people having, and, and some of your parents were so bad with this that when you were having fun working, what do they do? They punish you for having fun working. 
to make sure that you're not having fun working. You've got to, it's got to feel hard, right? And so this is what causes many of you to enter a life as an adult where you choose a job that you don't like and you believe that's what a person who's responsible does. But if a person who chooses a job that's fun and enjoys himself too much, we go, what? You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> not everybody can do that. We also have that belief. If everybody only chose work that was fun, then none of us would clean. See, I believe cleaning's fun. And I did, I did it for five years. I know what it, how much fun I had doing it. So I know it was fun. Right? But it was fun because I got some pleasure out of it. I enjoyed the process of cleaning up. I enjoyed the, the pristine environment that was left afterwards and so forth. But most of us don't grow up like that, do we? We're there doing the dishes. and <laughs> Where's the dishwasher? So now I bet, how many of you don't have a dishwasher? Okay, so about half. Right. So... Because we've got a machine that does that now, right? Because we don't like doing it. How many of you as a child hated wiping or washing the dishes? Uh, pretty much most. Uh, how, how many of you hated having to clean up your room? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I know my sister hated cleaning up the room. And we shared a room for a lot of time. So my half of the room was perfectly spick and span. And her half was just a total disaster. Of clothes everywhere. She would, you'd have to walk over your clothes to get to the closet, you know. And then she'd wonder why they don't last. <laughs> but that's all because of these definitions of work, what's work and what's fun, you see. The reality is a person who takes complete self-responsibility and has some self-worth will actually find cleaning up after themselves just as much fun as doing any other creative thing. They'll actually see cleaning up as a creative choice. Uh, the majority of us don't see that as a creative choice. And that's all because of the parents' definitions. A lot of our parents have had judgery all their life and now they would feel, and many of them do feel this, they feel like, you can't have fun while you're working. I never got to have fun while I was working. You can't have fun while you're working. Right? And there's this feeling of jealousy about anybody else who has a different type of feeling about their work. And as a result, many parents will say, you can't go off and be a musician. Stupid person. You've got to go and be an electrician instead or a plumber. Something that people need. We don't need musicians, you know. That's what you do in your spare time, you know, after you've worked. A man works. In particular, this is projected at men. Okay, any other things that you can think of? Okay, Rinke? A lot of things come from that one, obviously. Um, honesty is un unwelcome. It equals punishment. Okay, so let's make a whole big area here and call it morals and ethics. So how many of you have had a parent that said, you've always got to be honest, and yet whenever you were honest about their things, they belted you? <laughs> right. How many of you found um, that when you were growing up, 
you, they, the parents said, you've got to tell the truth, right? Yep. And then when you told the truth, you got smacked. <laughs> what did that teach you? There's a lot of pain in telling the truth, <laughs> isn't it? That's what it teaches you. So there's distorted opinions about what is moral for a start. And then there's also distorted opinions about what is ethical. Now, let's define ethics as I desire to do for you what I would like you to do for me. Not what you actually do for me, but what I would like you to do for me. So I want to do for you what I would like you to do for me. Now, how many parents take that attitude with their children? When a child says, why do I have to do that? What's the main response? Because I said so. <laughs> so the, the father's there smoking away. <sighs> and you bring home a packet of cigarettes and you're nine. Where'd you get those from? <laughs> Don't you know it's bad for you? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, Dad, but it's bad for you too, isn't it? Don't know how dare you call it. You know? <laughs> and, then it's off, and then it's on, right? And this is the lack of ethics. And so what we learn is that ethics mean nothing. Actually, that's what we learn. And morals are completely the definition of what our parents viewed as moral. Right? And when I say ethics mean nothing, nothing, I mean that. For most people on the planet, they have no clear concept of ethical or unethical behaviour. Many of you, even right now, have no con clear concept of ethics or ethical behaviour. So when somebody tells you something you don't like, you get angry. But do you like other people getting angry with you? No. So whenever you get angry with another person, you're unethical. Unless you like other people getting angry with you, then I'd say getting angry with other people is more ethical. <laughs> Does that make sense? So what I mean by that is this, if here's you and here's another person, if we were ethical, right, what I would like them to do for me is what I do for them. So if I would like them to be nice and kind and considerate of me and never get angry with me, what would be my demand of myself? To be nice and kind to other people and never get angry with them. That would be ethical. But every time I get angry with another person, if I'm angry with another person, I am probably being unethical because it's very rare that you like other people being angry with you. Right? There's very few people in the world who's, who's, who sit there and go, give me all the rage you got. I love it. <laughs> What's most people's response to rage? How dare you be angry with me? And they get all angry back, right? Yep. Connie? Is that how we sort of see um, addictions as we call them ethics, do we? So we're giving a feeling to someone, we want them to give one back. Correct. Sorry. We then start believing that addictions are ethical. In other words, I give you a feeling that you want as long as you give me a feeling I want and it doesn't have to be the same feeling. It just has to be a feeling I want. 
That becomes our view of ethics. So most of you believe your addictions are ethical. Because if you didn't believe if you didn't believe they were ethical, you'd probably get rid of them. Most of us believe they're ethical. So most of us, when we get angry with another person, we believe we are justified in doing so. We believe that's an ethical stance. It's not, of course. Mary? Just while you were uh, on that topic, I was uh, remembering um, a statistic I heard recently about the planning for this for this. Event. Yeah, these are very good examples, and maybe we can mention some now. So far away. Um, One statistic's very interesting. <laughs> and that is, out of all the people who have arrived here this week, yeah. there was only one who read all of the information that was provided yeah. and simply made a booking. Everyone else felt the need to contact Robin and clarify something, and I understand most of what they clarified with you was already given on, on the website. And in fact, pretty much all of it was already on the website. So everyone had to call and ask a question at, because they hadn't read the information thoroughly. Exactly. Yep. exactly. So what's that? What would you call that? Why did you need to call Robin, find out more, when all of the details necessary for a booking were actually already there? It's funny what happens. <laughs> Can I just make a suggestion to you? Whenever you're personally called on something, there is a deep resistance to actually working out what's actually going on because you automatically are feeling judgment. Right? So you're deeply resistive to actually then going and finding out what is the real reason for something. So let's go across to Boris. And Barry, if you can just aim the video at Boris. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, it's an addiction. If you just come forward a little so Mary can see. Yeah, okay. yeah that's okay. it. Uh, it's an addiction for somebody providing information for us rather than taking personal responsibility for it. True, but what else? When you say it's an addiction, there are other, f- other parts to this, aren't there? Like we want the personal interaction with a person. Rather than just reading something and making our own choice. A lot of times we want them to reassure us. Afraid of making a mistake. Yeah. Missing something. Missing something. But all the details were there. Yeah. Anything else that you can think of? Also, uh, spending our time. We don't want to waste our time. Spot on. We don't want to waste our time reading a five-page document with all the details. So what do we do? We ring up a person and waste their time instead. She already knows. She already knows, and she, or she, and she, and as well as Michael and, and, and Carolyn, obviously, who put together the document, they know what the document says. So rather than have to read the document, they'll just, I'll just ring up, ask my question, they'll tell me the answer. Then I don't have to wade through the document. I can just do that without having to bother myself. So we are very frightened. Sorry? Fear. Well, it's fear, but also it's selfishness, isn't it? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's very selfish. Inconsiderate. It is inconsiderate. It's inconsiderate of Robin, who, by the way, donated all of her time, and so did Michael, and so did Carolyn, donate all their time to actually make the event happen. They didn't, they didn't get paid for it. Some of you have even tried negotiating with Robin 
about when she's gone out and got something for you and the price of that thing when she's brought it back. And you've tried to negotiate with her about that price. That's pretty unethical. Like she got something for you. She's done it voluntarily. She drove her car there, took her time to do it, came back, and then you wanted to pay her less than what she bought the thing for. That's unethical, completely unethical. No worries. Anything else you can? Uh, anything else you wanted to mention, Mary, that of other unethical behaviour you've noticed? <laughs> Just that one was enough. Everyone's gone into the total shutdown. Yeah. Who wants to know who was the one person who did the booking? No one wants to know. The one person who who was just totally ethical. Now I'm not talking about the three who already knew here, by the way, what to do. I'm talking about all the ones who didn't. Like the one person. Do you, you want? Don't you want to know? Oh, I definitely want to know him. He's a he's a person who takes self responsibility. That's a very good thing. I, I like spending time with people who take self responsibility. Yeah. I'm not telling you who it is. You don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> Okay, what else? Many of you think you know. You're going to be surprised. What else about ethics here? Can you see ethics is a huge problem in terms of what our parents said was ethical and what they taught us was ethical and then what we've grown up thinking is ethics and then most of the time we're not, we're not being ethical at all. We're, we're just feeding addictions and wanting the other person to feed an addiction back. Yeah. Floyd? And this would have more than just our parents as well. It would have with church or, or religious affiliation or school as well. Correct. And, and so it could be very confusing if what you're taught at school or church would be different than what your parents were teaching you. Correct. in a great deal of confusion. Yes. And so we end up feeling very confused about ethics. And in fact, any discussion about ethics actually internally rarely happens inside of a home or in any other environment. You have to nowadays, to have a discussion about ethics generally, you have to go to a university course to discuss ethics. Now, my opinion is a five-year-old should know ethics. Yes, if they're, if they're unapproved. If they're unaffected by the adults, yeah. they know what the ethics are. Yeah. By the time we're seven and have a de- developed mind, we should have a very developed sense of ethics. But the majority of never learn ethics their entire life. Most people who pass into the spirit world have no concept of ethics at all. And the reality is that it's only those generally who go along to a university course who learn anything about the concept of ethics. And yet what I see in the material of most university courses on the subject of ethics is poorly conceived codependent addiction <laughs> rather than ethics. And that's how, that's how um, what I feel, that's how like, bent we are when it comes to the principles of ethics. Right? We, we're just, just, it's amazing how, how bent we are with the ethics. So, for example, just to give you an example, um, it's probably fair to say of the three of you, Robin probably spent the most time organising this event because she lived in Texas, is that correct? I know you guys did a lot of uh, 
you know, investigation first and everything. But uh, Robin finished up doing a lot of the leg, leg work, you know, arrangements. Now, Robin does not deserve any of our anger, resentment or anything. She gave us the gift of this lo- a, a large amount of her time. And yet some of you have actually got angry with her about the arrangements. Now, I'd say that's unethical. How dare we make demands on a person who's already given us time for free? It's pretty unethical to to make a demand of a person who's already given you a gift. It's like, that's the same as getting at Christmas time, mum and dad give you a present and you say it's not enough. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's like, you imagine you're sitting down in the family around the Christmas tree and, and you open your gift and you look at your gift and say, that's terrible, and you throw it against the wall. You say, where's my the gift that I wanted? How many parents would think that's a good quality in their children? Not many, right? But that's what many of you do when somebody gives you something for free. Throw it against the wall, dismiss it, get rid of it, and then project it that they should have given you a different gift, one that you actually wanted. All right? That's not ethics. But that is a belief that we have from our childhood that we can do that. We seem to believe that. Nina? One of the injuries related to that that I felt I had as a child was that when I was given something, I was then under obligation. When you were given something? Yeah, there was like my mother often said, well, I did this for you. You know, so that therefore I was somehow obliged to repay in kind what she had done for me. Correct. And so there's this bartering system. Yes. Yep. So what we come to believe is that ethics is barter. I give you something, you give me something in return. Right? We also come to believe barter equals love. If someone's not willing to barter with us anymore, then they don't love us. You, you did that. You've done that this week. You know, actually. <laughs> I've observed. You've accused Lloyd of anger when the reality is that he just didn't want to do what you wanted. <laughs> Does that make sense? Floyd of anger. So, so that's your barter. Your barter is if a man doesn't do, want to do what, he want, what I want, I just accuse him of being angry with me. And then he'll have to self-question himself and then he might think, oh, well, maybe I should do what she wants. Does that make sense? And that's your definition of love from your childhood. It's what you believe. And and you're willing to even say to them, like, you know, you're angry, rather than go, hang on a sec, who's angry? (laughs) Maybe I'm the one that's angry, I'm the one making the demand, you know, like, (laughs) you know, that, that they do what I want. Yeah. I see this happening a lot in relationships where one person demands the other person do what they want, and then when the other person decides to not do it, they say, you're not loving me. Right? Or, you're angry now. Or, you know, so, and, and it's very, like, it's misrepresentative of the facts. Does that make sense? But it is what you believe from your childhood. It is that, certainly. So in your childhood, there's this establishment that if somebody does what you want, then it means they love you. Right? And most of us have grown up with that definition. If somebody does what I want, it means they love me. If they don't do what I want, it means they don't. Uh, one, one of the team members here 
came up to me and said, can I speak with you? And I said, no. And all I got was this barrage of rage. She stormed off into her room, was really, really angry with me. And all I just said was no. She asked me, can I speak with you? But what should have been her statement? I am going to speak with you. Sit down and shut up and listen to what I have to say. That's really the feeling coming out of her at the time, right? Because if, that, if the feeling was, can I, then she wouldn't have felt bad when I said no. Does that make sense? She only felt bad when I said no because the feeling wasn't, can I? It was, you will. And so this is what I find we often happen with ethics too, is the language we use is all nice and politely couched, but the feeling underneath is actually pretty nasty. <laughs> right? And we have even come to believe that's ethical. Yeah? In other words, we've come to believe that it's okay to have all these really terrible emotions towards a person as long as you have a smile while you do it. Or as long as you use the right words. Like I've actually said people, I've actually, some people have come up and said, please can I you know, have some time of yours to discuss something? And I say, no, I can't give you that time. And they go, but I said please. There's a, there's a childhood belief for you. How, how, I, I would guarantee that their mother or father said to them, if you say please, I'll do it. I see a big problem with that statement. Just because a person says please, it doesn't mean that the other person should do it. <laughs> the other person's got the right to make their own choice. They can say it's no, even if you say please. Does that make sense? But they obviously were brought up with a different set of ethics than that, uh, where free will is not honoured. Mm. Is there any more that you see? I could spend the whole, you know, probably ten weeks on ethics. Actually, so we better stop on the subject of ethics, otherwise we'll just keep going on and on and on. Our biggest problem with basically most of these definitions are that they are all unethical. And we haven't even considered whether they're moral. And my definition of morality is what is God's definition of morality? What is God's definition of what we should do right, in terms of, what it, in terms of moral and truthful choices? With ethics, I see that as what is, is what I demand of you the same as what I'm prepared to give you? And also, should I even be able to demand it? If I'm really ethical, I wouldn't even feel like I can demand because if I'm really ethical, I would realise that everyone's got free will and they're allowed to do whatever they want. So therefore, I can't demand. I can only do for you what I would like you to do for me. Right? That is a statement of ethics. And it's also honouring free will. Right? But in our childhood, what happened to our free will? Generally, was completely dishonoured. Right? Now, I'm not suggesting that a parent should give the child an unlimited free will. I'm not suggesting that because the child does need to be taught that there are boundaries in the universe. But the boundaries need to be based on love, not the parent's definition of what's right and wrong, but rather on God's definition of what's right and wrong. And the boundaries should be based on ethics, not on what the parent's view of ethics is. Uh -huh. 
So we need boundaries. We need to understand there are laws in the universe that constrain our activity. This is what I find many people have difficulty with divine truth because they start hearing that there's a law of cause and effect and there's a law of attraction and there's, a, you know, there's all these different laws, a law of compensation, a law of repentance, a law of forgiveness, a law... And they start going, well, that's a lot of laws. All right? And they, and they start rejecting the idea or concept that God would have laws, even. All right? But laws are essential for a governed universe, for a universe that is going to be smooth opera smoothly operational. Right? So, so we have to expect that in a family, laws are essential. But generally, the law that's essential in the family is whose? Mum and dad's, right? And for many of us, it's not mum and dad's law. It's whoever was the dominant gender of the mum and dad relationship. So for some of you, you grew up with the dominant gender being mother. So that was law. Dad's law, who cares? Dad did what mum wanted. <laughs> right? And then for many others of you, dad's stuff was law. And mum didn't, you know, no one worried about what mum was going to do. Mum was always just doing what dad said we had to do. And this is how we've grown up. So usually it ends up being not parents' law, but one parent's law. Not collectively, as, a, as they, you know, they didn't make choices and decisions collectively. They decided to have one of them dominant over the other, and then that person who was dominant became the lawgiver of the family. And unfortunately for most, of, for most of us, it wasn't even consistent. You do one thing today and you got you know, praised for it and, and everyone had a great laugh and thought it was so much fun and you did the same thing tomorrow and you got belted for it. And what do you learn from that? I'm totally confused now about law. Like, <laughs> what do I do, you know? And a child who is embraced in that situation has a lot of very negative effects on their adult life. They finish up feeling in their adult life that they don't want to make any choices at all. Does that make sense? Because every choice they made had some kind of... Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. There was no consistency during their childhood. And so they grow up believing that there's no way you can make a good or a bad choice. You, and so most of us then who believe that start believing there's no way you can make any choice that's going to satisfy everyone. So then they go, the best solution is to not make any choices. And this is why we have whole groups of people on earth now who are totally dependent on other people to make the choices for them rather than being willing to make their own choices. Again, because of these childhood definitions of beliefs. Yeah. Anything else you can think of? Okay, if we come to Jen. Um, that the world is not safe. Yes, uh, so there are huge issues, shall we say, associated with um, secu security, shall we call it. And insecurity we could place, and this, if we're... You know, here we're in a Western society, so physical security, and by that I mean to do with your food, your clothing, your shelter, is pretty safe, right? It's pretty, it's pretty consistent. But in some countries, they don't even have that. There's not enough food to eat, 
no shelter to sleep under, you know, no clothes. You know, so it gets down to physical. There's emotional security as well. Yeah, primarily I didn't feel it was safe to be me, you know. Yep, so that's more of an emotional security feeling. Yep. And there's also spiritual security feelings that many have. When you have a nation that has a primary set of beliefs, if you have a belief that's opposite those sets of beliefs, usually you get attacked, and oftentimes violently, to the point where you're tortured or die. That, that's pretty unsafe. So it's unsafe. We start feeling it's unsafe to have an alternate spiritual belief from our family and our society. Right? We feel it's unsafe to have an alternate emotional belief system. We feel it's unsafe even from a physical system to actually think differently at a physical level right? in terms of the choices we make physically. But there's also these flavours of the security systems as well, like what defines our security. So sometimes we have security in our family but none in society. Right. Or we have security in our family but none in our religious format. Or the opposite to that. We have security in our religion but not in our family. And so then we have all these very warped definitions of security being built up as childhood beliefs. Where, where we're not even clear what real safety means even. And what real security means. Yeah. Anything else you can think of? If we come down to Um, that my basic needs, like for sustenance, food, stuff, is stressful to the environment? Um, so let's carry that back to a... That's a very adult way of saying. Yeah, so like if I'm hungry or if I need something, it's stressful to, to the adult. So you need some new clothes, but we've not got enough money to get them. Yeah. For example. And even with food and stuff. I think because there were seven kids. Yep. They so were all a year apart. There's never enough to go around. Yeah, they were totally overwhelmed to have all of them, but they didn't realize that they just went ahead and had yep. them all. And they did that for religious reasons. Yeah, Catholic. Yep. And so they had so many children that they couldn't care for each child. Yeah. So every time, like, if I needed my diapers changed, I'm sure, if I needed some food. Everything was, was delayed. And it was stressful to somebody. Yes. And also everything does get delayed too, where you're hungry but you have to wait another hour. Or, yeah. you know, you need new shoes but you've got another three months. Yeah. Or, so you, you end up with this feeling that everything is not in abundance. Right. But rather there's scarcity and lack. Yeah. Isn't it? Yes. Right. And, and we grow up believing that lack thinking is actually the thinking. Yeah, and that my basic needs are problematic. Yes, to everyone, yeah. including myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd call that sort of lack or scarcity belief systems. Yeah? If you look at what God does, of course, you, you, know, you, you grow a peach tree and you get a thousand peaches every year. <laughs> you know, one tree, a thousand peaches. And every one of those peaches, the way God designed them is they have a seed and you plant the seed and they grow up and they have another thousand. And you can plant one seed after it. Like there's all this abundance and yet we don't see that mirrored in our personal daily life generally we have the opposite occurring and a lot of that is because of what I would classify as financial de de decisions that are being made as well both 
collectively, culturally, society-wise, and also individual financial decisions of what is our priority, uh, what is our family-based priority. Do, do we get food over whatever else? So, so what I see a lot of people doing even now is they buy poor food because they have this feeling that you know, food's the last thing on your list to get. You want to get the house first and the car next and, the, you know, and so forth. And good food, no, you don't, you don't want to spend $100 extra on good food a week because that could pay for some things towards your car. So you don't do that. You pay for the car first and then what's left over, you scrounge around for the food. Right. There's a lot of families who still live that way, even in your country, right? Yeah. So this whole lack thinking is a childhood belief that there is lack in the universe, there's lack in the world. You know, and this is why we even grow up with the feeling, you eat your dinner. Don't you know there's people over the other side of the world starving? Right? So even when we don't have lack, we're taught that we should have lack. Right? So there's lots of belief systems in there. Anything else you can think of if we come down to Scott and then back to Robin? Yeah, um, it's really just a comment. I made a connection between my relationship with God and my parents' idea of what perfection is. Mm -hmm. And probably everyone can relate to this, that children should be seen and not heard. Yes. So we grow up believing, as an adult even, that we either do one of two things generally as an adult with that. We either rebel against it completely and make sure everybody hears us and... This is a common thing I notice in your country, actually. Americans are renowned for being louder than everybody else in the room. Does that make sense? Um, but also there is a lot of people that are very, very shy, that never say a word. They never make a comment. They never put up their hand. They don't ever get personally involved. They're too afraid to do all of those things. That's because when they're a child, generally that, that was enforced, this feeling. We're allowed to see you, and even then, that's questionable. <laughs> but uh, definitely not hear you. Yeah, if we pass that to Robert. That if you're productive, you're good, and if you're um, having fun or relaxing, then you're bad. Bad. Yes. Yeah, so that's back to perfection. What makes up perfection? What or self-expression? You know. So when you're relaxing, that's bad. Because there's no such thing as relaxing. You've got to work, 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 work. The only time you relax is when you sleep. And the only time you sleep is when you're dead. <laughs> you know, we, we carry it to that point, don't we? So um, we then busy our lives. Many of you are addicted to busy. In other words, you've got to stay busy. You've got to stay engaged with other people. You don't help yourself or choose to have alone time where you actually deal with something alone. And even when you start feeling emotions, you want somebody else to talk to, somebody else to share it with, somebody else to be involved in the process, right? And a lot of that is all because of this feeling that we can't go alone. And these are all childhood beliefs. Okay. Well, of course, we could continue again for most of the day probably listing these, couldn't we? So can you see that the belief from childhood is having right now still a very large impact on your life. Can you see that? In terms of what you believe and what you do in your day-to-day -day life. Yeah? Okay. 
I'm just going to swap this around. Hopefully that might improve uh, my transmission issues. Okay, so then comes question number two. What do I do to avoid feeling these things? So remember we said uh, a couple of days ago now that the way to progress, and in fact I'm saying to you basically that the only way to truly progress is to feel everything that you believed when you were a child. Actually feel it. When you feel it fully, you can release it. And when you release it, you're then open to a new belief entering you. And the reason why many of you are struggling with divine truth is because you hear it and you go, wow, that's so true here. And here's going, that's not true, that's not true at the same time. So your heart is going, that's not true. And your head's going, yes, that's true. Heart's going, no, it's not. Head's going, yes, it is. And if you're mind dominant, you say, shut up, heart. Yes, it is. Right? And if you're heart dominant, you say, shut up, mind. No, it isn't. Right? So it just depends on, and most of us are head dominant, so we say, shut up, heart. No, what I believe is true is now true. But from a, what we call subconscious perspective, and I believe there is no such thing, but most people would suggest there is, they go, I keep on doing what I know I shouldn't do. And why do we do that? Because these childhood beliefs drive what we do, whether we think differently or not. Now, the only way for these childhood beliefs to leave us is for us to feel about them. We're going to have to feel about them at some point. Now, do you know how we know that most of us aren't feeling about them? Because the reality is that none of you have yet cried about any of these things we've listed while we're talking about them. If you were feeling about them, you'd be going. And you'd start having these feelings inside of you of, wow, like no wonder I'm struggling with my addictions. Like I'm just, I'm just not wanting to feel all this stuff. Just all these childhood beliefs that I don't want to feel. And what I notice here is it's so interesting. We can have a really in-depth conversation together and the majority of you walk out the door and you're not upset at all. And I'm going, "Mm, if I had just learnt that, I'd be pretty upset. (laughs) You know? I'd be pretty upset about some things. Now, have you noticed how that makes you detune to movies and detune to songs and detune? Like you play a movie, for example, where someone gets stoned to death, like the other night, the Soraya, Stoning Soraya M movie. How many of you felt so overwhelmed with grief that you just cried for hours? A few of you. How many of you watched it? Uh, So three times that amount. So... So that tells us we're already quite detuned to even connecting with how bad it is. When something's that bad, someone getting stoned to death for something they never did, doesn't affect us emotionally, then it tells us we're very detuned emotionally from our childhood beliefs. And this is why we struggle. 
We struggle because we're so detuned from childhood belief systems that we need to feel. If the average one of us felt how much lack there was in our life right now and then connected to that to the fact that when I was a child I was taught there was lack here, there was lack there, I couldn't get enough food, I couldn't get enough clothes, I couldn't have the right shoes, I, didn't, I got hand-me-downs from everybody and all of those kind of things and we started to feel about that, the, the average person would cry a lot about that actually. Right? Once they truly felt about that. And then as, as they cry about that, the feeling of lack leaves them. Now God's truth, which is there is abundance in the universe, can enter them. Does that make sense? But it can only enter them after that feeling of lack leaves them. And what I would like to firstly suggest to you is that not choosing to not feel these emotions, in doing so you are causing yourself a disservice. It's not serving you anymore to not feel these emotions. Because every one of these emotions you hold on to, it affects how you live every single day of your life. You make choices and decisions every single moment that are based upon these belief systems. And while they remain in you, you're automatically making the choices. A lot of these choices without even thinking without even pondering about them because it's automatic because they're all emotions from your childhood that you are not willing to feel. Does that make sense? So you're making all these choices. Now you imagine if all of these things were all flawed in some way and for most of us they all are. They're all flawed in some way. Can you imagine the effect that's going to have on every action I take? So put me in a situation where somebody treats me badly. What's going to be my choice? If I believe that strength is maintaining a good facade and not crying, what am I going to do? Not cry. If I believe that perfection is putting an outward facade so that other people can think I've still got things together, what am I going to do? Put the facade on, make out I've still got everything together, when inside I'm either angry or sad. And then we wonder why so many people suicide, because they just can't put the facade on anymore a lot of times. If I have the viewpoint that it's um, the society viewpoint, that if I feel my feeling in front of somebody else, that that's going to mean that they'll probably get really upset and eventually want to commit me into a psychiatric institution, then it's highly unlikely that I'm going to actually feel and the parents might have taught us that by saying, every time you cry, I'm going to belt you. Or they say it another way. If you keep crying, I'm going to give you something to cry about. <laughs> There's a lot of threat in that, right? right? And so when we grow up, we believe if we keep crying, the world's going to give us something to cry about. So, of course, we turn off all of our crying as a result of that. Can you see just, just those three things have a huge impact on our decision to cry in public <laughs> and to really grieve we need to cry. I often say to Mary, babe, God made tear ducts. That means he meant you to use them. <laughs> right? 
So, you know, but, but this is not how we've grown up to believe. So the next question is, uh, um, um, can, I, can I ask whether, does everyone understand the relationship between these belief systems now that are inside of you and you as an adult going through your life? Can you see the relationship of how they're affecting you? Yeah. It's very important you see the negative side of this. Because that will help you make the decision to make a different choice. See, if you believe that doing all of these things in this way that we've brought up to believe is actually good, you'll never make a different choice. But if you start seeing that every one of these things must be affecting you, your intellect, your decisions, the way you see world, the way you see yourself, the way you see your environment, the way you see your family, your friends, your husband, your wife, your children, your work, and all of these other things, it's all defined by these things that all come from your childhood, you'll start to see it's no wonder that we've got pretty messed up lives half the time. And then you'll also go, okay, if that's what is causing me to do what I'm doing now, imagine the life you really want. How are you going to get there? By changing these. These has to change to get you to have a different life. We need to understand that emotionally. This has to change in order for us to actually have a different outcome. Right? We need to see that relationship. If we don't see that relationship, it's highly unlikely we'll start looking at our addictions because we have no motivation to look at them. If you believe your life's all together right now and everything's great and you're very, very happy, thank you very much, it's highly unlikely that you'll change your behaviour or any of your belief systems. But if you can see that their life is pretty messed up right now and there's a lot of thing, problems with it that you eventually allow yourself to connect to and you can see that, then you'll want to change some of these things. And when you want to change some of these things, then you'll want to look at what you do to avoid feeling these things. But for the majority of us, we don't want to look at what we do to avoid because we think all of these things are true. In fact, many of us hold on to them for dear life, you know, somebody can come along and say, look, that belief is actually false. And you argue with them, you'll fight with them. Sometimes people fight to the death just on one of these issues. Most of the wars in history have been caused by one of these issues. Being out of harmony with love. Most of the deaths in the world have been caused by these issues being imposed upon a group of people in society, so many people, in fact, that they can go to war with another group of people about them. So most wars are caused by a distortion of the truth about these issues. Just even the issue of strength causes wars. What is strength? What is perfection? Causes wars. Historically, there's been wars between two different types of religious faiths because of their definition of perfection or their definition of what makes you holy. So once we start seeing, wow, the effects of 
these things all being childhood beliefs that are out of harmony with God's definition of love, once we start seeing it, we go, we need to change this inside of myself. I need to change this. I need to start doing something actively and urgently to change this is the feeling we would have. We wouldn't want to keep on accepting what we currently accept. Okay. So now that we have some motivation, and I'm not suggesting you do, <laughs> because to do that you're going to have to feel about some of these things and how painful they are. That will cause you to have some motivation to change them, right? But once we have some motivation to change them, the best way to start changing them is to look at what you do to avoid them. And this is what it relates, relates to, of course, our addictions. So remember I said that this was our addictions and this question one related to our beliefs. Remember that? And it's our holding on to false beliefs that cause our addictions or the avoidance of the feeling of the false belief causes our addiction. I'll say that again. The avoidance of the feeling of the false belief, the feeling of the belief that we imbibed as a child, it's the avoidance of that feeling that we imbibed as a child that causes us to seek to have addictions to satisfy those beliefs rather than to feel them. So if we look at it as an example, if I believe as a child right, that strength is violence... I will take violent actions in order to feel strength. So I'll revert to violent behavior in order to feel strong. And, it, and let's define violent behavior. Anything from anger through to physical, sexual or any other type of violence. Emotional violence. So... So I will take a violent action if I believe that violence is strength. If I believe anger is strong, crying is weak, I will always revert to anger rather than crying whenever I feel challenged. Because it's the avoidance of the childhood belief, to feeling the childhood belief and feeling through it that causes us to revert to our addictions. Okay, so... So, what did you find out in this part about yourself? What do I do to avoid feeling childhood beliefs? So, Sai, you want to start? I guess the first one I really recognized was neediness. The need to be special. Yeah. So, um, so, what does the need to be special help you avoid? Um, the parental lack of love my yeah. emotions my lockdown emotions yeah. um, you learn to lock down your emotions in terms of strength because if you have emotions then you're not strong yeah. if you're not perfect then you can't get what you want or what, what you were told you should want yeah. um, so it's even not even what you exactly, want half the time. Yeah. exactly and if you're not good then if I, I need to um, 
What else we got there? Oh, I need to work really hard. Like hard working is just tops. If you're not working 14 hours a day, seven days a week, you're not working at all. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I didn't take a holiday for the first five years of, of even longer. Yeah, it I was going to say, only five. Time. I remember for a period of my life, 13 yeah. years, I yeah. never had a holiday. <laughs> And then ethics, it, it um, you know, there's such a disconnect between what you're told and what you actually do. Yeah. And so, and you, your need for security creates huge neediness and you don't want to ever experience lack, in yeah. fact. So you need to keep producing, 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 producing. Yeah. And then you will start doing anything to have that production. Yes. And so then, you'll make all sorts of compromises, you'll yeah. treat people badly, yeah. you'll yeah. do all sorts yeah. of things. You'll use people yeah. um, to get what you want, yeah. um, even though you're loving them while you're doing it, you because that's important, them. because yeah. that's the holy. So you're all like, oh, you're a wonderful yeah, person yeah, and everything, yeah. but really the feeling is, that. I'm going to yeah. use you as long as you let me. <laughs> so those are, uh, those are just needy addictions. So that's sort of the first one I hit. Um, so the projection of neediness. And that solves the whole good enough thing, right? Yep. Like if it, it creates a huge level of neediness to try to fill that hole of not being good enough. Yep. You know, I remember my dad saying, you know, if you were singing, you wouldn't get a smell. Or if you're singing for shit, you wouldn't get a smell, you know, so... You know, the other night when I was singing, I over... What does that mean? Can you just help me with that Well, one? in other words, not only wouldn't you get shit for singing, but you wouldn't even get a smell. <laughs> like, right? I still so. don't follow it very well, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> is that a Canadian that statement, is it? You don't get no. that one? Uh, I've never heard of it, no. Well, if you wanted to, if, if you were singing, hoping to get shit for your talent. Right. Not only wouldn't you get the shit. But you wouldn't even get the smell of shit. You wouldn't even get the smell of shit. That's how bad a singer you are. <laughs> okay, so, so, you know, those create neediness for approval. Yeah. And neediness for approval is actually greater. So is that why you were singing so loudly the other night? Well, no, that's actually, you know what? That's <laughs> no, the first funny. time I have sang in public in 40 years. Wow. Yeah, wow. And I used to sing professionally. So that's the first time wow. I have ever sung in front of people in so 40 years. So your father years. pulled you down about your singing, did he? Well, it, it all just came, yeah. yeah. That whole, that actual experience of that actually finally overcame me at the end of one of my band cycles. Yeah. And, and it actually just shut it all down. And that's why you reverted to a business life, was it? After exactly. That? Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. then, you know, then the whole neediness and the work ethic, yeah. right? The work, 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 work. Yeah. And my mom told me that my dad wasn't good enough in bed and that created sex addiction. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I mean, I'm watching all this. I'm going like, <laughs> bang, 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 bang. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And now... I, I think that I've been working on these for the last six, eight months yeah. deeply, deeply, deeply because... Can you see these beliefs have been created over years and years of programming, haven't they? And you can see that six to eight months of emotional work is probably not going to do it, can't you? It's like, I'd like it, though. <laughs> yeah. Most people would like to have it all cured in a few months, but the chances of that happening... 
pretty remote given the amount of problems that we have in terms of what we've been taught. The, the amount of times and the, the, the sheer numbers of false beliefs that we're going to have to feel are going to dictate how long it takes, of course. So, you know, for the majority of person, people on earth now, you've literally got more than a thousand false beliefs, plus, generally, to work your way through. Now, for most people, they go, well, then that's going to make it never-ending, but that's another false belief. A thousand isn't never-ending. Like, like these, this equation mathematically does not work. In other words, a thousand does not equal infinity. But it does represent a lot, doesn't it, a thousand? But it's not infinity. Infinity is like billions, 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 and, then, and, then, and it just keeps going, 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 doesn't it? Infinity is a number that we just can't count. That's what we say to ourselves, though, when we say it's going to be never-ending. We're basically implying that we've got an infinite number of false beliefs to feel. And that's not true. So that's an untruth. We need to stop telling ourselves that it's never-ending because it's not true. The truth is a 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 even is not infinity. There is a sheer limit to how many false beliefs you can imbibe in the course of your childhood. Because generally your childhood lasted anywhere from you know, 7 to 20 years. Right? So, so the, there, is a, there is a limitation to how many false beliefs you can actually imbibe in that time. So, so the fact that it's limited means that there will be a limit to how long you have to deal with them. Right? That makes sense, doesn't it, logically? So stop telling yourselves that it's unlimited because it's a false belief. Logically, it's impossible for it to be unlimited. One of the interesting things is that, I, you know, recently I came to the conclusion how vile my upbringing was, really was, and yep. really felt that and knew it and, and really faced it and started to deal with it. But while you were going through this today, I think there's some spirits flying around here right now, yep. and they were whispering in, in my ear how good some of those things were that my parents did and gave me. Yeah. And it was, you know, I'm going like, get out of here. Like, this, <laughs> like, I'm not. And, and, and can I and that's say something about get... that, though? Sure, go ahead. It is true that it's very rare to find a parent that is wholly bad. There are some that are almost like that, but it is quite rare to find a parent wholly bad. In other words, there are some things that most parents taught us that are actually good, too. It's just that. The problem is finding those things, generally. And we're not going to find them until we feel about our beliefs. See, sometimes you'll find you'll feel about a belief and you'll go, actually, that's true. <laughs> right? In the end. You'll actually go, well, that is true. Like, for example, it's important to have boundaries. Most parents implied that through their parenthood of, our, of ourselves. And that is true. It is important to have boundaries. That's an actual truth. Now, many people grow up nowadays without boundaries and look how bad they get so young as a result of being given everything. Right? So, so 
it is true that it is important to have boundaries. So we can't assume from all of this discussion that everything that every parent did was bad. However, you can see that most of us, and, and therefore most of us when we become parents, have a lot of very, very distorted viewpoints of what makes up love, strength, perfection, gender, holiness, and all of these other belief systems. We could list probably hundreds of belief systems here, and most of us, there is a wide variety of distortions of every single belief system. And without choosing to feel them, we can never get rid of them. So we hold on to them, and then they define the rest of our life. That's our problem. Our problem is anything we hold on to as a belief, will define the rest of our existence. It will dictate what we do, what we think, how we act, what we attract, the kind of people that we live with, the, you know, the, the partners that we have, everything. Define everything. Yeah. Mary? I was just thinking that the only reason... Like, my parents have a lot of belief systems that I don't share. Um, the only ones that I've been invested in sharing of theirs have been the ones that somehow relate inside of me to the receipt or loss of love, my personal worth or my personal safety. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's a truth? Not always true because... Um, Sometimes we don't share a belief of our parents because we're angry with that belief, which actually indicates an opposing belief that's also out of harmony with love in our soul. So it's not necessarily true that just because we don't share a belief with our parents that, that we are not injured in that particular way. Does that oh, make yes. sense? No, I see what you mean. Mm. Um, I, I think what I mean then is every addiction that I have is based around a belief I have that relates to love, worth or security? Generally, yes, that's the right. case. But it's not completely the case. Because right. some of your addictions will be based around beliefs about death, for example. Yeah, which I kind of lump into safety, but yeah. 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 No, I, I was just listening to everyone speak about this and for me, it's raw. Like, it's really raw, raw. these these childhood beliefs when I when I feel about addiction I used to talk about addictions in that sort of um, yeah I do that because I'm avoiding that I don't do that because I'm avoiding that almost like you did yesterday like almost a yeah. tape making fun type of, of them uh, yeah, and things yeah. like that yeah which I talked to Mary about last yeah, night yeah like last uh, yesterday in my talk I was quite I had a lot of facade about things that were deeply personal to me because and I didn't deeply hurtful deeply hurtful because mm. I didn't want to put that on show in front of others, mm. which is an addiction of mine. Yes. Um, but, I don't know, I'm too emotional to talk about it, but, um, but I, there's but yes, something... when you it, truly connect with these feelings, you become so emotional about them that you can no longer talk about them. That's an indication you're actually starting to feel them, actually. When you really struggle to start talking about some of them, that's a good indication that you're now starting to feel them. Right? For the majority of people, they haven't even got that place yet. Right? If, we're, if we're not struggling to talk about some of these childhood beliefs that feel really, really bad, then that's an indication that we're not sensitive to feeling them. Yeah, and I suppose that's what I wanted to try and say to the group, is that when, when you get close to these beliefs, 
they're not just something you took on. Um, you know, there's 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 a deep, deep hurt. investment and yeah. feeling around them. Yes. And and that's the place you're going to hit when you give up an addiction. And actually start feeling that yeah. belief. Yeah. 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 And this is why it's so important to start looking at our addictions relating to these beliefs because. The reason why you are not sensitive to these beliefs right now, the reason why you can list them without crying, is because you have addictions that help you overcome them. Does everyone get that? It's the addictions that cause the desensitization to the belief that's harmful. So it's the addiction that even prevents you from feeling what you would normally feel if you were the child in that situation. So, for example, if we, if we think about it just for, for a second, let's say as a child you went up and, and you were hungry, so you went in the fridge and you got out you know, a meal, not knowing that it was Daddy's favourite meal, and, and you started eating it. Let's say that's what happened as a child. You were six or seven years old and you went there and you were just innocently trying to feed yourself. Actually, it's probably a good thing, right? You weren't asking Mummy or Daddy... For, to do it all for you and you had a bit of self-responsibility that's also a good thing and you go and you get the meal and you start eating it and then dad comes in and it's his meal you're eating so what does he do he goes off at you all right now in that moment you learned that you shouldn't take self-responsibility that you have to now ask before you do anything you have to ask somebody in a position of responsibility or power before you do anything you can't take care of yourself unless you know for certain that nobody else is going to be bothered by it. And you learn quite a number of things, right? Now, if you go back to that event and feel about it, can you see that you'd probably have a good cry about what happened to you? Particularly if you got belted or punished for taking that meal. Does that make sense? You'd go back and you'd just feel the tears about that, wouldn't you? If you, if you were truly connected with it emotionally. For the majority of us... We can even talk about the event and laugh about it while we're talking about it. That's how desensitized we have become to the child emotion associated with the event. Does that make sense? We've become so desensitized that we laugh about things that, are, that were actually deeply hurtful to us and we still feel deep hurt about there's an indication that we feel deep hurt about it because we're so frightened now in our day-to-day -day life to actually go and do anything on our own back just in case we make a mistake and somebody's going to punish us. That's the indication that we're still terrified. Right? And yet when we talk about the event that caused that, we laugh. That's how much desensitization there is. So you can see that the addictions have to somehow desensitize... and you spell that with an S don't you that's why I did a V work that out I was trying to do a Z actually alright so we desensitise ourselves from the actual feeling of what happened in our childhood to create that belief that's what we do the addictions are all about that creating desensitization inside of our soul to the actual hurt. Does that make sense to everyone? That's why we choose addictions. We choose addictions because it helps us 
detune from the pain. This is why they become so strong. Because we want to avoid pain all the time or be numb. Remember, Mary, in our discussion two days ago, Mary mentioned the three options. There was, there was feel the pain, right? Be, feel pleasure only, feel pain, feel pleasure, or be numb. Most of us, feel pain is not an option. Right? So now there's just feel pleasure or numb. So our addictions help us desensitize so that we only feel pleasure or we feel numb. We're desensitized completely to the pain. It's a way of management of pain. Does that make sense to everyone? We're really just managing the pain. We spend most of our lives, in fact, managing pain. And the addictions cause us to manage pain. They allow us to manage pain. That's why we choose them. So, So what are the addictions? So, for example, if we're a woman, some of the addictions are going to be different than if we're a man in a certain situation, aren't they? So, so if the general family were feeling was men are more important than women, if I'm a man, I'm going to have a certain addiction to that, aren't I? I'm going to want that. I'm going to think that's good. Right? And so I grow up feeling men are superior. I engage a religion that says men are superior. I engage a wife who believes that I'm superior to her. I you know, tell my children that men are superior. If I have a woman, a girl child and a boy child, the boy is allowed to go out and have sex whenever he wants to. The girl has to be a virgin until she's married because men are superior. And you know, the, the boy grows up and he gets to go to university. The girl doesn't even get to go to school. So in some places in Africa, that's the case, isn't it? Because the boy is superior. So I have all of these things that I'm doing in my day-to-day life because I have an addiction to believing that I'm superior. Now, giving up that addiction is going to be pretty hard because any contrary thought to that, I'm going to believe, is unloving. Like Equality, to, to me, if I believe those things, equality is actually an unloving thought. So this is why most men in countries where they've grown up to believe they're superior feel that when a woman is actually equal to the man, she's wrong. Because to that man, she is putting him below her when she's just trying to put him equal. So, so he has a belief that he's up here and that, everybody, that the women are down here and she just says, no, no, we're equal. To him, that's like pulling him down. So he believes that's not love. And he'll violently sometimes oppose that approach. He will so violently do it that he's willing to sometimes even stone to death the woman that he thinks he loves in order to prove that his superiority. That's, that's an extreme, but that's what happens. Right? Now, if you're a woman and you've grown up in a, in a family who believes the woman is superior and that the men are all there just to do what the woman wants and the men are all there to give sex to the woman when she wants it and if she doesn't want it then he's got to just control himself and and if you know if if the woman wants you know the fear to go away the man runs around busily making the fear go away and if the woman wants a new house he goes out and gets a one and if the woman doesn't want to work and wants to bring up the kids then he goes out to work and he's just busy doing all these things for the woman and you've grown up in that in that family and you're a woman 
you're going to think this pretty cool family, aren't you? You're going to think, yeah. And when you get to be an adult woman, you're going to think, where's the man who does what I want? Where is he? Oh, yeah, there he is. There's one. I'll get him. And he comes along into your life and you marry him. He, you think he's a fantastic guy. He does everything you want. I once heard a lady say, say that, uh, you know, that um, she had a, her husband died. And she said, we had a wonderful relationship. And I said, what did you define as a wonderful relationship? He did everything that I wanted him to do. And she thought that was a wonderful relationship. For her it was. Right? In her own mind, for her it was. It's not really in the end, of course, because it's distortion of love. But in her own mind, for her it was. She thought it was fantastic. She thought it was a great thing. Of course, if you ask him, he'd probably go, yeah, you know, like, he probably think, I'm so glad I'm dead now, you know, I don't have to be in the relationship, you know, like, that's probably what he thinks. Right? And, uh, and I've actually seen people pass over into the spirit world where the husband passes over first and he's just so relieved to be out of the relationship, right? And, uh, and I've talked to them and whatever. And this was in, in the early 1900s. Um, so it, sometimes we, we think that things have changed hugely, but not all things have changed very much at all. So he's, he's so relieved now. He doesn't have to be with his wife. His wife's on earth for another 15, 20 years. He sort of thinks it's great that I died first, right? I get a bit of freedom now. And then she comes to the spirit world, and you know what happens? They enter the same relationship again, and he's gone, oh, terrible. I uh, just wish she never died, you know, like... <laughs> Like, I just wish she stayed on earth, you know, now I have to do what she wants. And, and vice versa, obviously, also occurs. Does that make sense? Where the men have been violently abusive and so forth. The women have just been so happy. And, and sometimes the women are so happy and they progress and then they release all this stuff and they progress to the second or third sphere. And then the men pass over into the hills and they say, where's my woman? Where's my woman? She should be here somewhere. Where's my 70 virgins, right? And... Um, and, and, and she, she's not there, right? Because she's already grown beyond her addiction to doing what, which was fear, to do what he wanted. Right? So that also happens. But it's important for us to see how these addictions affect all of our life and the fact that they desensitize us to the feeling of these childhood emotions. That's that's why we do them. That's why we have them. So when you eat too much, you're desensitizing yourself to a childhood emotion. Right? When you get sick, you're desensitizing yourself to a childhood emotion. When you have allergies, you're desensitizing yourself to a childhood emotion. We even create physical infirmities in our own body in order to avoid a childhood emotion. Right? There's lots of things we do in our addictions. Right. So what do you do? What are your pet ways? This is what I'm asking you now, is to respect, not to generalise anymore. I'm asking you now to be self-reflective and say, what are your ways? 